Hi, Portico. Oh, Kachov. Hi, Portico. There we go. Good to have you here this morning. If you're visiting, we welcome you to Portico. We trust you feel right at home and uh, that you really do feel that Jesus is the rhythm to life. Welcome those of you that are watching us online today. Uh, hi to those in the chapel and those in the video cafe. We're one church, one message, many expressions. We connect together so the message of Christ can go out. And we're just thrilled that you're with us here today. I want you to get your Bibles out. You can go to your electronic devices, your Android, your iOS devices. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 26. If you need to borrow a Bible in any one of our venues, raise your hand real high. And uh, we have ushers that are making their way through the room right now. You can borrow the Bible, leave it on the chair. We'll pick it up after the service. If you're online this morning, grab your electronic device or your Bible at home, track with us. We want you to be able to go into God's Word and see exactly where we're teaching from so that you can see what God teaches us and how it applies to our life. The series that we're in is called Life Rhythm, Synchronized Living in an Offbeat World. And I have to tell you, we're getting so much good feedback from people just talking about, you know, we often don't talk about these issues. It's nice to open our hearts up a little bit and uh, reveal some of those areas that maybe we keep a little sheltered from others. And so the conversations have been really, really good. And I would encourage you, if you're not in a small group, get into one of our community life groups. We call them CLGs. And we can help you at the information center. Or if you're not sure and uh, you just want to come down on Wednesday night here at the church, you can join in a large group experience. And so come down for supper, join the experience. But for sure, don't let the material that we covered today and over the last couple of weeks just sort of settle off into the dust. Bring it back into your life. Get into your personal journey with this. And you can always go to our website and get the previous messages and follow the entire series through. Well, this morning, we're going to jump over to Matthew chapter 26, so I want you to turn there. We're going to look into the life of Jesus. Now, it's an interesting text we're going to get into, because the topic today, the message title is called Good Grief. You know, we think about Charlie Brown. That was that famous statement, everybody, good grief, Charlie Brown. And we sort of throw that out there, but if you stop and pause for a moment, you think, what is grief, and is there a way that you go through grief, make your way through grief, that's truly good. Can there be good grief? So it's almost an oxymoron because grief is sort of this image of something dark and deep and broken and hurtful and painful. So whatever we go through when life throws a curve at you, whether it's a lost job, a health illness, a relationship breakdown, whatever it is, uh, we grieve. It's not just when someone dies. There are lost points in our lives where we go through loss. Sometimes it's a dream. A broken dream. Sometimes it's a job opportunity that just is taken away from us. And and there's a grieving that becomes a part of the journey. And how we handle that is actually quite crucial to our overall emotional, spiritual health. So in the journey we're looking at, how do we become, as followers of Jesus, emotionally healthy spiritual people? And to do that, we actually have to open up this one area of our lives, and we're going to look at it in the life of Jesus. It's the area of our emotions. Now, most of us, most of us recognize that and we appreciate that God says, hey, I, I created you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. How many of you know that? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. How many of you know you're really awesome this morning? There you go. All right. See, that word translated well. All right. So we can use awesome if it's a better word for you. But you, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I didn't say fearful of the other person. I said fearfully and wonderfully made. That, that God would create us that God would say, let us make man in our image. And then he turns around, and what does he do? He creates us. He creates us with spiritual capacity. He creates us with intellectual capacity. He creates us with physical capacity and emotional capacity. 
But when you think about it, we don't often give the same amount of attentions to each of those dimensions. Some give a lot of attention to their physical capacity. Most of us do. We want to have good health. And so we'll really pay attention to our health. We'll even go to gyms or we'll exercise. We'll get out. We'll walk. We'll do whatever we need to do to take care of the physical capacity in our lives. We expand our intellectual capacity. We read books. We go to school. We go to university. We just pick up and follow. We read Google, whatever it takes, uh, just to expand our intellectual capacity. We'll even expand our spiritual capacity. We'll get together like this on a Sunday morning. We'll get into small groups. We'll read the Bible. Anything to expand. But have you ever noticed that for some people, when you bring up the word emotion, it's like, whoa, that's it. We're not going to talk about emotions. It's like when you get into an argument, and if you're married, and if one of them becomes emotional, the other one just like, whoa, I don't know. I know that if, you know, early on when we were married, if Laura ever moved towards the tear moment, it was like, okay, okay, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. No tears, we're not going to go there. And somehow we're raised with this, that emotions aren't a part of who we are. So we were raised in cultures, we were raised under parents, we were raised under leaders. They would say, you know, just keep a stiff upper lip. You know, real men don't. Wow, you guys went to the same school. Amazing. Real men don't cry. It's, and that actually gets embedded into us, and I see it in my role. I see it not just when I deal with funerals and loss and grieving in that capacity. I see it all the way across. I see it when marriages break down. I see it when kids run away from home. I see it when finances are just depleted, and it's dismal that there's this, there's this sense, particularly within the, the male gender, that, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to be firm about this. I'm going to be resolved about this. And we buy into something that says your emotions need to be deeply controlled and almost dismissed. But the Bible says that we are emotional people. We have all of these, and this expanding of our emotional capacity is critical to our lives. Why is it so important? Jesus is going to show us. I'm going to show you from a text. He's actually going to, in his life, demonstrate that increasing our emotions or being honest with our emotions is important to us, and grieving is important to us because of this. It expands our capacity to connect with God and to connect with others. That when we go through, call it what you will, when life throws you a curve, when you go through a real difficult time, when you have a hardship that you're wrestling with, whatever caught you off guard, whatever throws you into your dark tunnel, whatever that moment looks like, our tendency is to try to block, shut it down, move away from it. And yet what Jesus shows us is this is a perfect moment because moving into grief is when you open up your capacity. You just expand God's ability to step into your world because he doesn't turn his back in those moments. And it also helps us to connect with others. It's often an awkward thing, and we'll look at that a little bit. So let's do this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 26. So where I'm going to pull my story today and for our teaching points, now for those of you that are, have already looked ahead and you've seen there's five points that I'm going to cover, and you go, you can't make three, Doug. Let's see how you do with five today. Well, we're going to do this, all right? I got one on my team. Okay, we're going to make this happen. We'll cover these off. Uh, again, this is why I'm going to encourage you. Get into small groups and follow it up. There's just so much good discussion that's going to come out of this that I want you to track. But I'm not going to give you one of those power moments here. This isn't going to be Jesus standing in front of the temple, sort of pushing back against the Pharisees. This isn't going to be Jesus in one of those great miraculous multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. It's not going to be all of the power that we see. We're going to see Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man. We're going to see fully man 
in the emotions and what Jesus does here. So Matthew chapter 26, look at verse 36. Coming off the back end of that supper, the last supper that we refer to it as. And Jesus with his disciples, knowing what he's about to face. Here's what we read. So Jesus went with his disciples to a place that's called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Would you sit here a while, and I'm going to go over there and pray. Then he went a little bit further, and he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, if you're new to the Bible, that's James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going just a little bit further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will be done. He returned back to his disciples. He found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went away once more and he prayed a third time saying the same thing. Get the story. Jesus has come into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. People are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jerusalem could not be charged with more energy, more power, and more life. People are anticipating this is the one This has got to be the chosen one. He's got to be the preferred one. He's doing things that nobody else has ever seen before. His popularity is soaring. Within five days, it would plummet to the point where people are shouting, crucify him. Before that little little window, that little twilight moment in Jesus' life would come, he tells his followers, he tells his closest disciples, he said, would you make preparation for the Passover? I want you to do that. It's going to be a wonderful evening. They're excited. Remember, they're living off the energy of this week that everybody has now moved into their camp because for so long they they were the outsiders. Now everybody is going, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They like their leader. So he says, would you do the Passover for me? And he says, yeah, we'll get it ready. So he gets the Passover ready, and while he's at the Passover, he takes a basin of water, he takes a towel, he begins to wash feet, and the disciples are going, no, 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 Rabbi, teacher, you don't do that. Why are they pushing back? Because this man's popularity and this man's leadership and this man's capacity is so much greater than them. We want to honor you. Don't, don't do that. You're not a servant. And again, Jesus is trying to show them the inverse understanding of the kingdom. The kingdom isn't about stature. It's about serving. And so he serves them this way. It'd be great if we could leave the story there, but we would also park and miss part of Jesus' humanity. Because in this moment, as he's seated around the meal, we look at more of the glamorous or what I call the sobering sides. We see Jesus understanding that he's moving towards the cross, but it's this gap. It's this little window that after he finishes the meal and they sing a hymn and they head out towards uh, Gethsemane, Mount of Olives, that we often overlook his humanity. And he gets into the garden place, into this place that's very, very special to him and to his followers. And hanging out with his disciples, Jesus moves into an experience which, again, all of us have either faced or will face. And he moves into a moment that begins to grieve his soul to points that I don't think any of us have ever experienced. And he uses words that are filled with deep, deep connotation and meaning, murky at best, for us to interpret. And as he goes into this moment, it's who he brings in and how he handles this moment 
that not only leads us to see both his divinity and his humanity, but it also gives us a pathway to understand that there is a way to live this life, to be emotionally healthy, spiritual people, and that grieving is a natural part of our life. So take a few notes with you. Let's write down something in your notes this morning. I'm going to give you five things I just pulled right out of the life of Jesus. Here's number one. Emotionally healthy spiritual people acknowledge their need to grieve. They acknowledge their need to grieve. They understand that it's a part of how God created them and how God designed us. They don't push away from it. They don't ignore it. They don't try to cover it up. They don't pass it off with slighted humor. They actually acknowledge that there's a need within them to give expression to sorrow, pain, loss, and misunderstanding that maybe others can't even speak into. Look what Jesus did in your notes, verse 36. Jesus went with his disciples to a place that was called Gethsemane. Literally interpreted, that means the place of the oil press. It was a garden grove. It was a place where um, olives would be harvested and literally crushed and the oil would be captured. But it's very, very symbolic of what's about to take place for Jesus. He knew he was about to face the crushing of his own spirit and life. And so what did he do? In acknowledging his need, he found an opportunity to give expression to his grief. He does something that many of us forget to do, that we take opportunity, that we're going through difficult times and pain, that we actually do grieve. And he found an appropriate place, a place that was safe, that he could go to, where he could be transparent. He could open up his heart, that he wasn't worried about who was around him in that moment, because what he was worried about more than anything else is to be fully displayed and candid before his father, have an honest conversation, and to learn how to grieve and to share grief. And that's what Gethsemane is. Gethsemane is the representation of the fact that good grief is displayed by people who acknowledge the need to grieve. All the way back through the the Bible, you just look at points of lives. Think about uh, Joseph grieving over his father, David, uh, Jacob. Or think about David as he grieved over his personal sin and his failure. You look at these individuals, even Jeremiah, lamenting over Israel's spiritual condition. What is that? That's, That's grieving. They acknowledge their need to grieve. I put a reference in your notes this morning. It's the life of Hannah. Hannah was a woman living Old Testament times back. They'd often go down to the temple to worship. But she would go and she'd have this deep bitterness of soul, not over her spiritual condition, but she was barren. She was infertile. She couldn't have kids. And she was chastised and ridiculed by family members. So imagine this poor woman longing to have children because it's part of the heritage, part of the culture. You want to bless your husband with a a family. She can't do it. Now she's being ridiculed and chastised, so she goes into the temple to worship and to pray, and she's asking God, God, please, please, could I just have a child? And while she's down there, the priest is watching, and her display is so animated, so animated, that the priest is looking at her going, she must be drunk. Like, look at her behavior And it's sort of a humorous yet poignant insight into a moment here. And I put the reference in your notes so that you can actually see it. But the priests accuse her of being drunk. Now look what Hannah says. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger. I'm very discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think that I'm a wicked woman, for I've been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. So here's Hannah acknowledging her need to grieve because she couldn't have children. So in her prayer, she just opened before God, God, I am so, so wounded in this. 
So it's a great illustration, a great reminder, just as Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Friends, when we go through these moments, we don't have to put up the walls. We don't have to sort of put on that brazen resolve and make it look like it's all going to be okay for everybody else. Part of our humanity and part of our emotions is to be able to acknowledge that we do need to grieve. There's another thing that Jesus does here, and I want you to put this into your notes. Include others in your journey. Include others in your journey. See, you go through difficult times, and whether it's the grieving over a loss of a loved one or grieving over a loss of a job or a broken dream or shattered relationship, when we go through a moment of pain, rarely are we attracted towards people. We tend to repel people. We move away. We move towards isolation. And grieving is not the process towards isolation. Grieving is actually inclusion. It's bringing people into the story and into our journey with us. Laura and I and our son Kyle, for 16 and a half years, we had a little companion in our house, just a beautiful little dog who was part of our family. And we had many, many years, lots of laughter, lots of fun. But we knew, Kayla was her name, we knew things were changing in the last couple of years for her. Her health condition was changing, and 16 and a half years, she had a pretty good run, let's face it. But uh, at, at 16 and a half years, we started to notice a couple of years before things really turned for the worse, that she started to pull away from the family. We would be over in the family room, we'd be all together, and we'd go, where's Kayla? I don't know. And we would look, and it's almost like instinctively, she knew And we knew that there were some issues. She had health issues. She was already starting to pull away. And there was like this separation that was taking place, which is true often in the animal kingdom. The difference in our world is God doesn't ask us to pull away. He actually asks us to press in, to include others in our journey. So let me show you what Jesus did. If you look into your notes this morning, when Jesus went over to Gethsemane in verse 37, look what it says. He took Peter and he took James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, along with him. And he had the other eight disciples. And then he began to be sorrowful and deeply troubled. These were those who had shared the most intimate of moments with Jesus. They were there in the big public demonstrations where everything was cheering and victory and celebration. And now Jesus, in this moment of loss and sorrow, has his friends closest to him. This is critical. Notice who Jesus brought into the journey. He didn't go to the marketplace and go, hey, I'm going to go through a tough time. Anybody want to come and join me? When you include others in your journey, you're looking for the people that don't have to speak. Their presence says it all. Do you understand, right? You're looking for the people that when you're in that moment, their sheer presence in your midst brings courage, brings comfort, brings strength. So Jesus invites Peter, James, and John, the ones who would see and had seen him glorified, would now see him in agony. They would learn, but they would also participate. It's exactly what Paul would do. If you look in your notes in Acts chapter 20, when Paul knew that he was completing his ministry in Asia Minor, and he was about to head off, and he didn't know what the whole future looked like, but he knew he'd never see these individuals again. He calls for all the leaders of the church to come together. I want you to come and meet me before I leave. And look what we read in Acts chapter 20, verses 36 to 38. After Paul had finished speaking to them, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and they kissed him. Here it is. What grieved them most was this statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That there was a moment that Paul opened up his heart He could have easily slipped aboard the ship, 
gone off on his own way and said, it's okay. I don't need to include and involve him. But in a moment that had significant life change where loss for Paul was loss of friendship, loss of relationship, loss of ministry. It's all going to disappear. It's all going to be done. He brings people into his journey and shows people how to share a tough moment together. And Jesus reminds us it's important to include others in our journey. Another thing I want you to see out of the text today, write this one down. When you're in this journey, be sure to engage in meaningful conversations. In meaningful conversations. Jesus was honest and deeply transparent with his friends. So I'm going to read a verse, and I want to go a little bit slower through it so we can see what he does here. It's verse 38. Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, here we go. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of grief. They hadn't heard words like this before. This is rabbi. This is teacher. This is the one in the wind and the waves who stood and said, peace, be still. And now he's in Gethsemane. And in this whole transparency of heart and spirit, he looks at his friends and he goes, my soul, my soul is sorrowful and I feel as I'm being crushed. So he shows how to bring them in and actually have meaningful conversation. He didn't gloss over this. He didn't just kind of go, it's okay, guys, this is like, you know, dad and I have a little bit of business to do and I'll let you know what's going on a little bit later. They were so confused. They had no idea what he was talking about. You know, first I have to die, and then I'm going to rise in three days. And Yeah, you're going to run away, and you're going to be scattered like the flock. And they're thinking, whoa, what's he talking about? Then he gets in the garden. He could have easily have passed over this, but he didn't. He has this meaningful conversation where the words become deeply, deeply significant and transformative. This was a hard road to walk for Jesus. He wasn't asking for answers. He wasn't expecting any answers. He simply wanted to be able to talk it out, to have a meaningful conversation with friends, to talk through the journey with somebody who would be a close friend. Jesus, no. No, 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 Jesus. This is not right. I'm talking to myself. Ever think about suicide? Suicide? Me? Yeah. Oh, no. But... Stage one. What? The five stages with denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So, of course, you're not thinking of suicide. You're in stage one, denial. What stage are you in? Denial. I'm thinking about suicide. Yeah, okay. The words are never trite. The words are never meaningless. In fact, words are often simple and few, but filled with power. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that Laura and I, a very good friend of ours, he was our pastor, he was a mentor, he's a personal friend. He's like a father to me, he's a spiritual father. That uh, early into his life here, I mean, he's, he's young in many regards. He's just the early 70s, but he received the news that he has stage four cancer. And they give him about six months to live. So we were shocked when we got the news. And uh, if, you knew, if you knew our friend, he's larger than life. It's just such a, a big, tall, powerful presence. And of course, as soon as I got the news, we just both talked about it. And we've been friends for over 30 years. And I said, we're, we have to go. So a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jeff preached on the weekend and we flew out 
to visit in California. And I remember, and I'll never forget this, it's going to be part of my life. It just shapes all of what I go through, and it fits so well with where we are today. I remember walking into his home, the two of us, to say hello. Hospital bed in the main living room, palliative care 24-7. And the man that I knew to be reduced to the man who was in the room, but he was still there. His spirit, his person was still there. And we had some incredible conversations, but you know, a lot of them had no words in them. We stood in that room. We sat in that room. In fact, on the Saturday, you want to know what we did? On the Saturday, Laura was able to take his wife and the two of them went off and spent a little bit of time together. And I sat in the living room with my friend and our conversation was watching the Blue Jays as they rallied in the ninth so they could lose to the Red Sox. I have to talk to them about that. That's not how you finish a game. But we sat there, and then we'd have these little moments of just simple conversation. We knew the reality of what we faced, apart from God intervening and bringing a a miraculous recovery or extending his life, which God can do, fully can do. But we also know that we have days that are measured for us. So our conversations weren't trite. They were meaningful. When we were ready to leave after spending a few days with him, we went back over in that morning. And he was there in the, back in his hospital bed in the room, in the, in the living room there. And as we walked in, we both took our turns. And I went over to the bedside, and I leaned over the bed, and I got down next to him. Just gave him a hug. And all I said was, I love you. That's all I needed to say. Because we had years of life together. And in that same embrace, all he whispered back to me, he said, I love you like my son. And that's what I'll carry with me. I pray every day that God will grant him more and more days. I do. But in that moment, there was more meaning and more communication in those few words that we carry. And Laura had the same opportunity to be able to give him a hug and just to talk to him. And so we know we carry both the privilege and the burden of someday holding a service on his behalf. But we also have the privilege to pray for him every day in and out. But in grieving, be it death, be it a job loss, be it financial ruin, whatever the grief is, meaningful conversations is what we're called to, that we have hope. We sang about it this morning. We have a God who prevails in the midst of the wind and the waves, a God who understands. In fact, could you go to your notes for a moment? I want you to show you. This is out of last week. John chapter 11, verse 21. I talked to you about when Martha hit the wall, she was upset with Jesus. You delayed, you let my brother die. If you would have been here, he could have lived. Watch how the conversation progresses from hitting a wall into how to grieve. So in John chapter 11, verse 21 to 27, we read this. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, yeah, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is come to the world. Here in this moment of incredible loss where she's grieving, Jesus engages Martha in meaningful conversation. Martha, I know you're grieving for your brother, but do you also see the bigger picture? that God is in control no matter what you go through. 
And this meaningful conversation is exactly what she needed to lift her out. And she had no idea what God was about to do. She had no idea the miracle that Jesus was going to perform. But what was important for Jesus to get across is, Martha, do you understand? I am the resurrection and the life. This is an interruption. This is not the end of the chapter. So engaging in meaningful conversations just moves us down to another one. And I want you to write this in your notes. That when you're going through times of grief, whatever you face, emotionally healthy spiritual people learn how to be honest with God. To be honest with God. To talk candidly, openly, transparently. See, I think for many, our prayers tend to emphasize the faith that we wish we did have rather than the faith that we do have that it's as if we're praying and we're trying to convince ourselves and perhaps even trying to convince God that we feel differently about our loss and the darkness we're facing than actually how we know we feel inside of us. Does anybody got a mirror? Does anybody have a mirror? I I don't know how you're doing on the inside, honey, but your hair's just holding up beautiful. Shelby was right. This is a brown football. Oh, honey, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I can jog all the way to Texas and back, but my daughter can. She never could. Oh, God. I'm so mad. I don't know what to do. I want to know why. I want to know why Shelby's life is over. I want to know how that baby will ever know how wonderful his mother was. Will he ever know what she went through for him? Oh, God, I want to know why. Why? Lord, I wish I could understand. No. 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 It's not supposed to happen this way. I'm supposed to go first. I've always been ready to go first. I don't think I can take this. I don't think I can take this. I just want to hit somebody till they feel as bad as I do. I just want to hit something. I want to hit it hard. Here. Hit this. Go ahead, Malin. Slopper. Are you crazy? Are you high, Clary? Clary, have you lost your mind? We'll sell T-shirts saying I slapped Weezer Boudreaux. Hedda! Miss Clary, enough! Weezer, this is your chance to do something for your fellow man. Oh. Knock her lights out, Malia. Let go of me! Malia, you just missed a chance of a lifetime. Half a chickapin parish will give the eye teeth to take a whack of Weezer. <laughs> honesty sometimes it comes out with humor but honesty and that's exactly what jesus brings us to in the text that when he's facing this crucial moment in his life there's the honesty that we just saw portrayed on the screen there's the why, the what's in this, God? Where are you taking me, God? Look at in your text right now, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. says, going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father. Okay, don't, don't spiritualize this. Dad, if it's possible, could you take the cup away? Dad, if there's any way that you could change the circumstances of my life, you're all powerful. Dad, if you could take this away. 
And so here Jesus and his followers being able to either overhear, but at least to be able to record what took place in those moments, Jesus was absolutely honest with God that he knew that the cross was before him, but that didn't stop him from asking his father and saying, if there's a way. And how many times have we prayed like that? You see, friends, honesty doesn't mean that we hide from the reality of our pain and our loss. It means we step into the middle of it and we say, God, I, I know you're in this. And I maybe don't see your purpose in it right now, but I know you're there. Help me understand. It's in your notes, Psalm chapter 22. We see it again. Cry out from the psalmist. He says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, and you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. These are the words of a man who is bitter in spirit and saying, God, where are you in my loss? Where are you? You know what I enjoy about reading the Psalms? They invite me into the same expression of honesty when I go through my grieving. They allow me to ask open-ended questions. But I also appreciate that the Psalms always start with this candor and transparency, and then they move across the spectrum towards expressions of adoration and trust and dependence. They go from, my God, my God, have you forsaken me, to, my God, in you alone do I put my trust. My God, in you alone will you be my hiding place and my shelter. You'll cover me with your wings. See, friends, being honest doesn't mean God will turn his back from us. It means he'll open up his arms towards us because he created us to be emotionally healthy in every dimension of our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus shows us how to do. And one more thing in your notes, I want you to write this down. And number five, when I look at the life of Jesus, he shows us when we're in good grief that we need to learn how to move forward in faith. To move forward in faith. Grief has its purpose, but it also has its limits. God not only sees our grief, but God enters into our grief. And in our journey of grief, there comes this moment where it's time to move forward in faith. Back into your notes, Matthew 26, 42. So Jesus went away a second time and he prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for the cup to be taken away unless I drink it, here it comes. May your will be done. That's moving forward in faith. And it says he prayed it a third time, the same thing. That when he came to this inner understanding and this quiet solitude of spirit where he goes, Dad, I would rather you took it away from me, but if you can't take it away from me, what's more important than anything in this moment right here is, may your will be done. And that's how we move forward together in faith when we go through these deep, difficult issues in life. David, in his relationship with Bathsheba, in all the brokenness that was represented there, If there was a moment of brilliance that came out of all of their mistakes, it was this birth of a child. But in the birth of a child, there was sickness, and there was a question about whether or not the child would live. And so David immediately goes into a a call of repentance. He goes into a call of pleading before God. He fasts, he weeps, he tears his clothes. And we pick up a story, and we look at a man who is distressed in spirit. And when the news finally reaches him that the child has died, all of a sudden, everything changes. And I want you to see, we're going to go to the scriptures. It's there in your notes. I just want you to see the movement in David's life, how he moves from this place of honesty with God into moving forward in faith. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, we pick it up there. It says, David got up from the ground, and after he had washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. This is after the announcement that the child has died. So the people are asking him, David, why did you do that? 
Now look how he answers. While the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live, but now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? And here it is. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David says, I can't do anything to bring this child back to me right now, but you know what I can do? I can keep my heart right before the Lord. I can live in honest confession before my God, and one day I'll go to this child, and we will be reunited in that statement. That's David teaching us how do we move forward in faith. So no matter what we go through in life, and every one of us is going to face these moments, Jesus shows us an incredible model of how to grieve, but most importantly when we get to the back end of it is to be able to say, Father, not my will. Your will be done. Your will be done. So the question I would leave us, with, leave us with this morning is, what is it that you're going through? What is it that causes the chasm of grief to feel large and overwhelming and almost looming in your life, bigger than you can manage? Those are the moments that the Bible reminds us, and Peter says, cast all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Jesus not only modeled and demonstrated, but through the cross purposed that he would be able to carry all of our worries and all of our cares. So he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Come, let me bear it for you. So there is a way to grieve. There is a way to live an emotionally healthy spiritual life. But part of that is to learn how to grieve in a good way. And I bring it all back to this thought that Jesus left with Martha. When he talked to Martha, he said, Martha, remember the bitterness of her soul over her brother. Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Friends, that's not just a declaration over our physical lives and our existence on earth. I am the resurrection and the life. I am Lord over death. I am Lord over your relationships. I am Lord over your finances. I am Lord over your dreams and your aspirations and your hope. I am Lord over your family. I am Lord over your wayward children. I am Lord over your insecurities. I am Lord over every dimension of life that brings you grief. Do you trust me with your grief? And Peter says it again. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. See, friends, we are invited not to ignore how God created us, not to somehow push down and just sort of repress our emotional feelings. We are invited to be honest, to bring those into the presence of God, to share the journey with those that are closest to us. And in the middle of it, go. Let the resurrected one be my life as I go through this. Amen? So, Father, this morning, that's what we pray in Jesus' name. We pray that no matter what we journey through, that we would discover healthy rhythms, healthy life rhythms to express emotion, to express trust, to express dependence. That when we're mad and we're upset, we tell you we're mad and we're upset. But Father, when we reach out in faith to feel the closeness and to have that willingness to say, nevertheless, not my will, but Father, your will be done. So I just pray for our church community. I pray for those listening to my voice today that whatever experiences we go through and we will go through. May we learn to walk as Jesus did. May we learn how to be open and to involve others, to be honest and acknowledge need, to have meaningful conversations, to talk candidly with you and listen responsively to how you speak to us, and then to move forward in faith. 
And God, I thank you that this is the promise that you give to us today. And at the end of it all, at the end of it all, we have this opportunity then to be able to declare, it is well with my soul. And that is the best declaration any of us could ever make. And so I pray that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? If you're over in the other venues, would you stand to your feet as well? We sang a song as we entered into this message. Talked a little bit about the waves and the wind, but it talked a great deal about what it is to be well when it comes to the area of our soul. So this morning, as you journey in this life together, no matter what you're going through, make this your declaration. Let the Spirit seal it is well with your soul.